I, I watch TV, you know, believe it or not. I, I do not spend every day just in prayer and study of God's word. I, I like to do some normal human things. I like to watch TV. I like series. I, I, I like shows that build upon each episode where it, it gets deeper and deeper and you know the characters and the season ends with a cliffhanger and you, you, you just like, ah, what's going to happen next? And, and I'm great with the shows that kind of, you know, have a one little thing here and there and it's always something different, but I just am really engaged with a series that builds on each other. Now, the, uh, the, the, the director and the writers of shows like that, they realize they have to in order to keep the attention of the audience, in order to keep them up to speed, they've got to take moments at the beginning of each episode and they, they, they do a recap and they say something like, you know, previously on, and then they, they give you a two minute, here's what happened, and you're like, oh yeah, I forgot, I forgot that detail, okay? Uh, kind of like, you know, previously on, keeping up with the Kardashians. Uh, you were mean to me at that party. Previously on, Dateline. They were mean to her at the party, or were they? John Smith reports. Previously on General Hospital, Dak's mother Gretchen died 32 years ago, but was cyrogenically frozen and came back at the party as a man who was actually a face of Gretchen. It was weird. That's General Hospital. Previously on Shadow King, 540 days ago, I started the series Shadow King, and seven days later, the entire world shut down with COVID. We took a hiatus from Shadow King all through 2020, and earlier this year in March, we launched back in. We took about 12 weeks on the Shadow King, and then summertime, we took a break. People traveling, I'm taking some extended time off myself, and uh, now we come to part three of the biopic of King David. We started with the origin stories leading up to David coming on the scene. We went through the life of the predecessor of David. And now we will pick up starting next Sunday on the moment David finds out Saul is dead and he is being invited to be the king over a broken nation. But today we're going to recap because this whole series. If you're just joining us, you can go back onto the podcast and listen in or uh, watch on timbercreekchurch.com. But I want to give us a gallop through some key players and see some key principles so that we can all be on the same page as we move towards Christmas season. We will end this and then we'll have our big Christmas services on the 19th of December. So here we go. Let's recap. There have not been a lot of people on the stage of human history that have been given the title great. There is no United States president like Washington the Great or Lincoln the Great. Um, there are just a few in history that have been given that title by historians and by their people. Catherine the Great in the 1700s was, uh, gave years of prosperity to Mother Russia. Ironically, though, although Catherine was great, Ironically, she had to overthrow her own husband in order to become the great. Uh, that makes her some awkward pillow talk the next day, you know. Hey, babe, sorry, you know. That's not like I burnt the toast. That's like I overthrew your kingdom. Um, in Greece, the great Greco warrior, Alexander the Great. He was the king of Persia, the pharaoh of Egypt, and later became the lord of Asia. 
He conquered more people and more nations than any other conqueror that's ever lived on the face of the planet. And he died at 32. 32. Now, here's ironic about Alexander the Great, as great as he was. It was actually, most scholars believe, it wasn't an assassin's blade. Alexander died of alcoholism. Alexander was the greatest conqueror on the face of the planet, but he could not conquer himself. He was great, but he wasn't that great. In an ironic twist, the Israeli leader, known as Great, did not get that title from someone else. He gave himself that title. It's one thing to be the greatest who ever lived. It's another thing for you to say, I'm the greatest that ever lived. And that is Herod the Great who was alive during the birth of Christ. And wise men had traveled from afar to come and visit him and uh, visit Jesus. And when they came to visit, they went to Herod's palace and Herod the Great because they thought that, oh, it must be in, they, that's where they were looking. That's where you'd look too if royalty was born. You're, you're not looking in a small town in England. You're looking at, you know, you're looking at Buckingham Palace for royalty. And Herod found out that there was another king being born. And so... He murdered baby. He was great in his infanticide and genocide of murdering Israeli babies all across the countryside because he was jealous and drunk on his own power. The one Israeli leader that could be given the name great that wasn't given that name most certainly would be King David. And King David, what I want to encourage us in as we recap, is you cannot put a suit and tie on old Davy, Okay. David isn't a 21st century American preacher pastor. He is a guerrilla, mercenary, ruthless warlord, married seven times, not just seven times, with seven wives. <laughs> it's one thing to be married seven times. It's one thing to be married seven times simultaneously. You're going to struggle trying to put him in a suit and tie, preaching it at, at, at First Baptist. Uh, he's got his flaws. He's got his issues. And you and I have been telling us since the beginning, you got to tolerate the shadows in order to find the light. The good news is every one of you got shadows. Every one of you got darkness. Every one of you got issues, including the one with the microphone at the other church over there. <laughs> I, I'm the chief sinner, but I can tell, I can tell you this. Um, there's hope for all of us. I love the Bible stories because they are full of hope for regular, ordinary, broken, dysfunctional people. And for as much as the great things that happen, for every Goliath, there's going to be the rooftop with Bathsheba. For every act of compassion, there's going to be a slaughtering that you don't understand. There's moments where we see his a brilliant military leader. David leads people in crazy, strategic ways as a military leader, but yet We'll find out during this part of the series and biopic of David that he's actually a hated father. That several of his own sons hated him. He was a spirit-led poet with prophetic and messianic insights. In other words, he wrote a thousand years before Jesus would even come on the scene about Jesus. When you read Psalm 22, it's like you're reading about the crucifixion a thousand years early. He, he was a spirit-led poet, but yet he broke the laws of God and man. He was disobedient to God. And the most crazy, ironic turn is not that he was called, not called David the Great. 
It's that God himself in the Bible, when mentioning David later, says he was a man after my heart. It's good news for you. That's good news for me. David's story is not in the Bible to point us to David because he's got his issues. And this church isn't designed to point you towards an elder, to point you towards a pastor, to point you towards a denomination, to point you towards a worship. It is to point you to Jesus. David's story and Timber Creek Church and this pastor and your word of God is not just to teach you how to read the word. It all is to lead you to Jesus. And so the key players and principles in the story um, it's important to kind of re-familiarize ourselves with three key players. And the first one isn't just an individual player. It's more of a people. Write it down if you're taking notes. Here enters Israel. God had chosen that he was going to show himself through not only a garden, but also through a people. And later through a Messiah. And then even later through the church. And then finally, back to a new garden. He's going to bring, bring things all full circle. But he chooses to show himself through Israel, a people group. Abraham, Isaac, and their Abraham's grandson, Jacob. His name is later changed to Israel, and Israel has 12 boys. 12 boys grow up. They become their own tribes. They all migrate towards Egypt because one of those boys became the viceroy of Egypt, Joseph. They begin to live and produce and reproduce, be fruitful and multiply. And it comes to the point where the Pharaoh 400 years, uh, a few hundred years later says, I don't like this. I don't like, they didn't remember Joseph. They didn't like what they were doing. And, and so they enslaved those Israelites. And for 400 years, they were slaves. But God, in his mercy, in his love, is showing us the story of Jesus. I don't want you to live in slavery. And that's your story, too. Jesus doesn't want you to live in slavery. Slavery to sin, slavery to self. And he pulls them out of Egypt, crosses the Red Sea, and they go to enter the promised land. And when they go to enter the promised land... They're trusting God and then they're not trusting God. It's all on leaning on the shoulder of God and then giving the cold shoulder to God. It's raising their hands to God and then raising the middle finger to God. This is the story of Israel. And the problem with Israel is actually humanity's problem. This is our problem too. See, Israel shows us as God continues to be faithful and invite them to trust him, they turn a cold shoulder, they, they push away, and they show what we have a problem with too, and that is an addiction to control. You and I are addicted to control. We want to have the last word from marriage to relationships to government to to, to the homeowners association. Like we're addicted to control. And it's been the issue since the garden. In the garden of Eden, God, uninterrupted God, right there physically with them as God, walking with Adam and Eve, things were perfect. And he says, hey, trust me. Give all your control to me. I'll give you responsibility. You can worship me by working the garden, by having fun, by walking around naked and not having any thorns. Bonus. But they were addicted to control. They wanted to take matters in their own hands. It wasn't the sin of eating the fruit that got Adam and Eve into trouble. It was the sin of wanting to control. It was the authority they were rejecting, the authority of control in their life that they rejected. And it's been a vicious cycle since. But also Israel, 
had a repetitive cycle of spiritual wandering. They would be hot with God and not with God. Hot with God, not with God. They would walk through the Red Sea and they'd be like, woo-hoo! They'd be doing the Pentecostal shuffle. But then Moses says, hey, hey, God's told me he's gonna give me some laws. I gotta go meet with God. I'll be back. You guys hang out, sit tight. Um, if I'm not back in 40 days, keep waiting. And sure enough, Moses goes up and it is 40 days. And in that 40 days, they can't wait long enough. You ever had kids that just can't wait? Kids are just like, come on, can I do it? You know, can I play on my phone? Can I play on your phone? Just can't wait. That's Israel. Where's, where's Moses? We want to do it ourselves. Let me do it myself. And so sure enough, they gather some gold. They say, Egypt was better than this. How easily we forget. How easily we forget what God saves us from. All of a sudden, that stuff in the past can get attractive. Let's, let's go back to doing that. And so... Moses' second-hand guy who's in charge while Moses is up in the mountain. Who, who, who knows doing what? He's probably just taking a nap up there. I mean, he's receiving the instructions of God for the people, and they can't wait. And so by the time Moses comes down, he says, what is going on? Because as he enters into the Israelites, he hears, <laughs> And he crosses, the, crosses over the mountain and he sees it there in the plain. And there's like this golden calf bouncing up in the middle of everybody. They're all half naked, worshiping a calf. Having an orgy. Moses comes over to Aaron. Yo, num number two, what's up? And Aaron gives the best third grade impersonation I've ever seen. Third grader impersonation. He goes... We threw some gold in the fire and out came a calf. <laughs> this was Israel. And they wandered and they got hot with God and not with God. Hot with God, not with God. I wonder if you've ever been there because I can tell you I have. Being a pastor doesn't make you exempt from having hot with God and not with God moments. Hot with God and not with God's seasons, where my flesh can get the best of me, where the words that come around in my head rattle me up and make me feel insecure, make me fearful, make me worried, and make me anxious. They can pop up just as much in my head as they can in yours, and I've got to take my thoughts captive to make them obedient to Christ just as, just as much if you do. Nobody's exempt from the repetitive cycle. So God had an answer. He said, hey, here's my solution. You're up and down, up and down, up and down. Here's what I'm going to do. I am going to give you strength and direction from a personal God. And so the, 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 the commandments that he gives all starts with, thou shalt have no other gods before me. I, I'm it. Love me only. Love me only. Be my personal God. I'll be your, per, I'll be your personal God. That was, the, that was the God's solution, but Israel had a better solution, they thought, and how many times do we think we have a better solution? Their strength and direction, they wanted from a visible king. They had seen from other nations that they had a king, and we don't have a king. We want a king. We're tired of living the way you just, Moses, you say God tells us. We want a king to tell us. And the prophet at the time, Samuel, saying, don't, don't, no, 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 you don't want this. And they're saying, yes, 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 we do. 
We want a king. And do you know the, the state of today's political heat has not created something in America. It's actually revealed something in America that a lot of us Christians put a whole lot of strength and direction in a political party on both sides of the deal. It's not, it's not made it, it's revealed it. Because when, when you got eight years of who you want in the office, oh, God's good all the time. When you got four years of someone you don't want in the office, where is God? Or vice versa. We love our strength and direction from a visible king. We're addicted to it. And it's the story of God saying, would you come off the addiction to control and lean into me? The truth is, all of us are searching for a king. And that whole king idea is not a person. It could be a situation. It's whatever I'm seeking for stability, prosperity, and happiness. If you put everything, all your eggs in the marriage basket, marriage is great, marriage is good, it's actually a gift of God, but I'm telling you, if you put all your stability, prosperity, and happiness in that, you're going to be disappointed someday because it is not a king for you. Relationships are not a king for you. We, we want to put all of our stability, happiness, and marriage in the, the success of our kids. And so we will sacrifice for our kids, give it up for our kids. We'll make it happen for our kids. And then they're 34 and their kids are still living with you. And you're wondering why? Because you're their king. And they're like, I bow down to you. Let me play my Xbox in the basement. All of us are searching for a king. And here's where the second character of this whole series, this biopic, comes into play. And that is we see enter Saul, the very first king that they choose of Israel. The Bible says in 1 Samuel 9, there was a wealthy, influential man named Kish. Kish would would paint his, his face white and stick out his tongue and play guitar. No, that's not that Kish. That's a different, that's a different, different Kish. It was a wealthy, influential man named Kish from the tribe of Benjamin, one of the 12 sons of Israel. And his son, Saul, was the most handsome man, woo, People Magazine, most handsome man in Israel, head and shoulders taller than anyone else in the land. This is a critical piece of this story because God is showing us you can't just trust on what you see You can't be so all about your eyesight. God's looking for insight. So many people are addicted to eyesight. It's why it requires faith in God, because that's an insight. Faith in something we can't see. But that's what they saw. That's who Samuel was attracted to, and God put his hand on it. God said, fine. You want a king? I told you, I'll be your king. I'll be your, more than a king, I'll be your God. They said, we really want a king. He says, fine. They say, fine. He says, fine. Careful what you ask for. So Samuel took a flask of olive oil, poured it on Saul's head, kissed him saying, has not the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? And the Bible gives us a beautiful moment here with Saul. The Bible says that the spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you, Saul. You're gonna be changed into a different person. The Bible says, as Saul turned to leave Samuel, he's just been anointed as king. God changed Saul's heart. What a beautiful moment. And I want you to know that this is our issue too. When 
we receive Jesus, God changes your heart. But, but, every one of us have the capacity to drift. And it's not a big drift. It's not one moment, a cataclysmic a moment. It's years of Saul being king. He drifts away. And what we see, the principles in Saul, write them down. Complex problems usually spring from simple issues. It was just a little leak in the attic. It was just a little leak in the attic. It's just a few degrees more cold than what the windmills can handle. Snowpocalypse. And there were some simple issues that seemed simple, but all of the complex problems arose from Saul's simple issues that became deadly. Number one, Saul was never fully yielded to God. And I want to tell you, that is my problem and your problem too. See, God changed Saul's heart. And today we would say, I got saved. But simple issues can create complex problems in your life and you can drift away from God. Saul's issue was he was insecure. Anybody ever dealt with insecurity? Some of you are like, it's totally me. And even your own insecurity is making you raise that because you don't want anybody else to think that you think you have it all together. So you're just gonna raise your hand because you're insecure enough to say, that's more me, that's me. Some of you don't, you wouldn't say insecure. You say, that's for wimps. But your own insecurity is putting a guard up for you not to see your own insecurity. Do you know what the driving force of a bully is? Insecurity. A bully bullies someone else because they want to point out the flaws in them because they don't want anybody else to have a chance to point out the flaws in themselves. And so second grade on the playground, pulling on, pulling on Julie's braid or making fun of someone's stature or their clothes, that's a way that we deal with our own insecurities. Saul, he had insecurity and it didn't lead him to become a wallflower. It actually made him, because he was head and shoulders and above and strong and handsome, it actually created a rage and a jealousy and a control issue with him. Write it down. Unyielded power will poison you. Your heart will drink the poison of insecurity and unyielded poison will poison you. And it shows itself in a different way for you or the other person. This is what Saul was dealing with. His security wasn't in God. His security was in himself and his title. Look, humility is yielded power. That's what humility is. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is strength that is yielded. When you're meek, you ain't weak. Humility is yielded power, but insecurity is unyielded power. For Saul, his insecurity was unyielded power and it caused him to rage, to be about himself. David struggled with insecurity. Do you know that he had father issues? David is the seventh born and he's forgotten by his dad when the prophet comes to anoint the next king. All the six other brothers get invited to the party. Everybody else gets invited to the living room. 
And young David doesn't even get thought about. Samuel's like, is this all the boys you have? He's like, well, I got David, but you know, he's kind of interesting. He's kind of fine artsy, you know. He's always playing his banjo and weird, pimply little kid. Bring him. I mean, listen, you get forgotten by your dad like that? That makes a big issue. You know, when your family forgets you at Disneyland and they go get all the way to Applebee's, true story. I'm kidding. It didn't happen. That, I'm kidding. But that would be a great true story that I'd love to put in my dad and mom's face. But you know, you, you, you deal with insecurities and he never fully yielded to the security he had in God. Friend, you don't have to live being identified by the words floating around in your mind that make you insecure so you fight it or insecure you hide it. Number two, God's word was never enough for Saul. God was clear, this is the way I want you to attack this army. And God said, ooh, I know that sounds good. God said, hey, don't leave anybody alive, don't take any prisoners, and do not take the loot either. Don't, don't take the riches. Now, Saul said, okay, yes, 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 I got you. But then when he got on battle, he's like, I think actually strategically it would make more sense if I did it this way. And he kept the king alive and he took the best stuff of all their cattle and their gold and stuff. Because, hey, we'll be able to fund that new uh, state-of-the-art catapult for the next battle if we do that. We're just trying to be good stewards of all God has given us. And he didn't obey God's word to him. Now, I wonder if you and I deal with the same thing. God has boundaries written all out throughout the word. But we love to push the boundaries. Because you know what that means? It's not that you push boundaries. It's not that, like, I guess God should know my situation. You are saying, God's word is not enough for me. When you live a life contrary to scripture, you are saying, God's word isn't enough. The way I feel is more than enough. The way I think is enough. The way I wanna do it, and do you see? It's the addiction to control, and it's not taking God at his true word. Number three, Saul valued religious practice over a personal relationship. Saul, Saul was being disobedient, was denying God's life for him. He, God changed his heart, but he drifted, and he valued religious practice over a personal relationship with God. Because when he drifted, Samuel told him, you're gone, you're done. The, the kingdom's ripped from your hands. He's like, well, can I at least worship and act like I'm the king? True story, read it, it's in the Bible. Y'all read the Bible, it's pretty cool. So you know, what, you know what Saul would do? He'd show up on Sunday at Timber Creek, one of the, loca the Israeli location. And he'd lift his hands, he'd greet. He went through Israeli starting point. Was on the dream team, safety team. Because <laughs> he could throw that spear. He was carrying Saul, Saul, Saul don't dream. Every once in a while, Saul dropped uh, something in the offering. But his heart was never for God. I saw someone from our church a couple of days ago at um, another church I like to attend very consistently, um, Del Rio. And I'm kidding, I'm kidding, but it is a holy experience. I love Mexican food. I can eat Mexican food, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Sometimes when I pray, I say, Jesus. Um... <laughs> 
I'm sorry. I know. I know. I, I, I wish you had a smarter pastor too. I do. Uh, anyway, um, as I'm walking out of the bathroom, somebody was walking the other way and um, said, hey, pastor. I said, oh, hey. And, and we began to talk for a minute. And, and he, he said this. He, he said, uh, you'll never know what impact you and this church has made on my family and me, how far gone I was. We would not be able to make it without you and the church. I said, well, thank you. It's Jesus through the church and me. But it's, it's Jesus. He said, I know. He said, but you know what? Here's what I've known all my life. Here's what he said. And I thought, whoa, we're, we're about ready to have church in Del Rio. Here's what he said. He wouldn't even think it was that serious what he said. I'm telling you, it was poignant. He said, I've always known God loves me. But it wasn't until I really started loving God that everything changed. Wow. As simple as that is, the number one command God gives us, love me, love me. Love your neighbor like that. Love me with everything. And it'll change everything. Saul did not love God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. And I want you to know that today, at the end of this message, you can change that. You can start on a new track. You're not too far gone. God is not mad at you. You haven't loved me. I'm not going to love you back. He loves you. He's faithful. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. But he's not going to force you to love him back. If you don't want to love him on this side of eternity, he's not going to make you spend eternity in heaven. Having to worship him all day long. You don't love him now. Why would you want to love him then? won't put that on you. Some of the most deceived about their spiritual state are active in the church. Religious practices, active, and yet you've fallen out of love with God. When's the last time that you sat and just not only spoke to Jesus, but just let Jesus speak to you. He's speaking. He loves you. In fact, he's calling you right now at the broadcast location. He's like, pick up the phone. <laughs> Friends, he loves you. Don't be deceived by activity. You know why Jesus left and said, I'm preparing a place for you? Because we try to prepare that place for all we do. You can't earn his love. He loves you. You have to receive it and just lean in to him. For Saul's life was continually sabotaged by his own rebellion. He would rebel against God. And how many times your life and my life were sabotaged by rebelling against the word that we don't think is enough for us. I love Proverbs chapter 19. There are some people who ruin their own lives and then they blame it all on God. Thanks a lot, God. I, if God really loved me so much, why did he let this happen in my life? 
And you're like, he was the one? He's the one that did that? Brene Brown is a psychologist at University of Houston. She tells a story that one morning her husband had made her a hot cup of coffee, set it on the counter. She was going to leave and go to her classes. He was already gone because he got up early, but he thought well enough as she was getting around. What a good husband. Put that hot cup of coffee, made the exact same, exact way she liked it. And as she's walking out the door, she's in a hurry because she's running a little behind. She grabs a cup of coffee to take a sip and she spills it on her white, her, her white blouse. And here were the words out of her mouth. Dang it, Henry. Her husband. Dang you, Henry. Her husband made her coffee. But in that moment, she didn't even recognize the love and the kindness. She was inconvenienced. And she put that frustration on, on her husband. Isn't that crazy? How many of us do the same thing? Dang it, Janet. Dang it, Janet. Why, why did you, you know, why did you let me sign up for that half Iron Man? How could you do that to me? <laughs> Janet's having a baby, CHI St. Luke's, 13 years ago. How could you do this to me? <laughs> As I slowly pick up a donut and just go. <laughs> I got to go. <laughs> Number five, Saul didn't know how to really repent. Here's what repentance is. You, I think it's gonna be hard for any of us to use the word repent outside of a spiritual context. I don't know if you say repent in a normal context, just in normal conversation about football, okay? You, you, you talk about repunt, <laughs> but not repent. Um, I'm full of one-liners today, everybody. That one tanked. It was funnier than you responded, but anyway. Um, Repent is a spiritual thing, and it doesn't mean fall on your face and cry real hard. It means change your mind and change direction. That's all it means, change your mind and change direction. So there are times where you repent, you know, of stuff. Like you, you're walking through the mall, and you change your mind and change direction. You repent. We don't use it because this is a holy word, though. There's, a, there's something powerful about this word. Saul didn't know how to truly change his mind and change direction. And this is humanity's problem too. Many times we will rationalize, we'll shift the blame on other people. We repent, but then our behavior remains unchanged. We obey, but it's conditional obedience. God, you can have 74% of the decisions I make, but the, but the other 26%, that's me. I've got my own philosophies, I got my own strategy. Why would I trust you with that? Absence of godly sorrow, like when we repent, understand that there is, there's a necess, necessary component that isn't shame, it's sorrow. Where we say, God, I'm sorry. When I hurt my wife's feelings, there are times where I don't feel sorrowful. I feel like saying, what? You're blowing that out of proportion. And sometimes she is, sometimes because there are times where I do the exact same thing. But then there have been times where the only way our marriage would move forward 
if she, she understood that I was repenting to her. I was changing my mind and changing direction. And I was sorrowful. I'm not just sorry, I'm, I am sorry. Can I encourage you, Christian? God may have changed your heart years ago, but it's okay to sit in the presence of God sometimes and just let, let him remind you of what he's brought you through. Also remind you of what you've done to hurt the heart of God. Not to hold you down, but to lift worship up. It's through that sorrow that I'm led to repentance. It's through that hurt. It's through that I say, oh, okay, God, thank you. Your grace is even bigger than my sorrow. Wow. Write it down. Repentance is full trust in God and complete satisfaction with God that will eventually lead to a glad surrender. Right now, it's a hard surrender sometimes to surrender to God. Oh, I want to obey him, but you're not doing it out of a repentant, complete satisfaction heart. You're doing it out of, out, out of maybe guilt, maybe a generational, uh, no, Christians don't act like that. And so you do it more as a no-no from your parents versus a, I want to honor God with my life. See, Saul couldn't get to that glad surrender. He had put some trust in God. He had had some satisfaction with God, but it didn't lead him to full glad surrender. He drifted. And here, Saul is anointed king, and at some point, Saul is going to die. And that's where we'll end today. 42 years, he is the king. 42 years, he has the chance to make things right. But Saul dealt with what you and I deal with. It's this right here. It's this, it's this shaded area. See, even at the very beginning, when God changed his heart, he still had to continually surrender and continually repent and continually you know, that unyielded power. He was yielding it, yielding it, yielding it, but he let it grow to a final point where it blew up. And here, Saul has unyielded rebellion and he just finally says, I'll do it myself. Isn't it interesting in this moment, God places a marker on this story. God places something right here. When Saul, because I want to tell you something. Had Saul found repentance, who knows how Saul's story would have ended. But he didn't. So God was going to show himself to us through another king. This is where in, David enters the story. It was at the climax of Saul's rebellion that Samuel finds David and anoints him as a 12, 13-year-old kid. And watch this, everybody. The primary issue in David's life, the biggest thing that we read about in David's life is the overlap of Saul's private reality or public appearance. Saul wants to still look like he's king, but Saul had stopped being king right here. But for this many more years, uh, 15 more years, Saul will act like king publicly, but privately he's not. And privately, David is anointed as king, but publicly nobody knows who he is. And it's that space right there 
that God is growing David with favor in the military, stature and wisdom. He's not just a wee child anymore. He's going to kill Goliath and he's still barely going through puberty. But at some point, he's going to become the man he's called to be to lead. And he's in the middle of all that. Can I just tell you, there's another shadow king that was born in the same place David was born. And he's going to grow up and he's going to be behind the scenes while everybody else is king. While there's a Pontius Pilate and there's a King Herod and, and there, there, there's a Caesar that we give to Caesar. What is Caesar's? But behind the scenes, running in the walls, the infrastructure of the almighty king of all kings, Lord of all lords comes on to the scene in a manger like he's born in a barn but he's going to grow the bible says after he's 12 same age around david coming into the uh, the anointing he's going to be growing in stature and in wisdom with favor with men and with god and it's the same thing that's going to happen with david because david's story doesn't point us to david david's story points us to jesus i'm preaching better than you're responding today So as we wrap up, let me give you a few insights on David, his principles. Number one, your family doesn't qualify you. Just because you come from a good family does not qualify you, doesn't save you, doesn't forgive you of your sins. Your grandma, I've heard people say, I'm just glad, I'm thankful for a grandma. She must have been praying for me today. But you have no relationship with God and it doesn't matter how deep grandma's relationship is. Grandma's relationship with Jesus will not save you. Your parents' love for God will not save you. Your family doesn't qualify you. And it wasn't just David being born in Bethlehem and being from Judah. Those were some linchpin important pieces because it was going to be out of the line of David that the Messiah would, would come. But your family doesn't qualify you. Here's good news. Your family doesn't disqualify you. So for some of you, you came from a tough thing, a hard thing. You're in a hard thing. And you say, how could God ever? Oh, he doesn't know what I've been through. Your family doesn't disqualify you. The sins of your dad don't have to be your sins. Jesus broke all that. Look at David's life. He's not this pure thoroughbred as a matter of fact, David's great-grandmother was a Gentile, a pagan, and even in the law, you weren't supposed to be in, in, uh, in authority if you had pagan blood. But, he, but David did. What? God's going against his own? No, he's, he's showing us a different way. Hey, David's great-great-grandmother was a prostitute. <laughs> Some of you have that in common with David. <laughs> Janet, um, no, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> oh my gosh, what am I talking about? <laughs> David's only five generations from slavery. He was a slave. So just know that your family doesn't qualify, your family doesn't disqualify you. Number two, what God sees in you and says about you is enough. It's not what other people say about you. It's not what that person, it's not what dad always said. What God sees in you and says about you is enough. And it comes back to Saul was bigger and taller and stronger and wealthier and more influential. And Samuel's gonna say, no, 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 no. God's gonna say, uh, 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 uh. I don't care about the outward. I care about the heart. 
What I see in you, what I say about you, even what you say about yourself. It's not about talking yourself up. I love self. I love self-motivation. I like, come on, you got this. We got this. Uh, part, of a, part of a gym that we, we, we talk when I go there every once in a while. We go there, like, oh, let's go, oh, rise and grind. Like we make it happen. We make it happen. Gym buddy right there clapping, one, one clapper. But what God sees in you, it's not about you just lifting yourself up with motivational speeches. God cares about you more than you could ever care about you. When you say, I can't figure it out, I'll direct you. I'll direct your steps. I'm too tired. I'm exhausted. Come to me. I'll give you rest. Nobody cares about what's going on in my life. Cast your cares on me because I care. And my care is pure. And my care isn't trying to get something out of you. I'm not trying to manipulate you here. I care for you. I cannot go on. My grace is sufficient for you. I am not smart enough. I'll give you wisdom. I'm not enough. (laughs) Good news. I am. I am enough. I'll be enough. I am who I say I am. And the truth is, when we have him, when his presence is all I have, I have all I need. But this is the issue. Israel, when they couldn't feel his presence, they put the gold in the fire. Saul, when he couldn't feel his presence, he took matters into his own hands. Sometimes you're not going to feel the presence. That's why the Bible says, be still and know that I'm God. Not be still and feel that I'm God. When his presence is all I have, I have all I need. When, I, when Israel was scared, when Israel was in fear, they take matters into his own hands. Saul the same, you the same too. And there's going to be a time we see in David where he does take matters into his own hands. He's a mighty man of God who struggled with lust. A mighty man of God who is a dysfunctional dad. And we see as we wrap here, David is anointed king. As a teenager, he kills Goliath. You would assume that David becomes king right afterwards. But no, he doesn't become king until 15 years later. And this whole space between David being anointed king and becoming king gives us point number four, waiting equals becoming. You're some coal. God's making you diamonds. It's some pressure and some time, everybody. And you've got to embrace the weight. The steadfast love, it never ceases, but it doesn't mean that it comes right now. You've got to wait. You've got to wait on the Lord. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. His strength is perfect when your strength is gone. Sometimes you've got to wait on him. But when we get tired of waiting, we get distracted. This is the final thought. A life of distractions never produce a life of meaning. See, Saul was distracted. Saul lived a good life. Friends, life is short. Live for Jesus, but life is long. Don't get distracted. Live for Jesus. And it wasn't about all this good stuff. And I'm going to tell you, some of you, listen to me, listen to me. Some of you keep going back to all the things God did in the past because right now you're living a distracted life. You cannot survive on last year's victory. 
got to focus on Jesus again, everybody. And it's in a life of distraction. Saul could have had a life of meaning, but he chased David instead of setting up boundaries. And we come to Saul's final moments. See, for 15 years, Saul and his jealous rage and his addiction to control and his spiritual cycle of wondering got him focused and distracted on David. He could have set up a succession plan. He could have said, you, you're a giant killer, bro. You are a leader of the leaders. I don't know how this whole thing works, but you could be the next king. And he could have grown David, but instead his rage got the best of him and he chased, he wasted the fourth quarter of his life chasing a gnat in the desert Here's what, here was the result, everybody. A life of distraction never produces a life of meeting and it will produce turmoil in your life because instead of Saul building up walls, instead of Saul building up a military, instead of Saul strengthening their push against the real enemies, some of you are fighting enemies. They're not your real enemies. They're your spouse. They're your, they're your kid. They're life. They're not your real enemies. You're chasing down the wrong enemies because you're distracted. And Saul never set up a strong bulwark against the Philistines. So the Philistines grew and grew and grew and grew and grew. And we come to the end of Saul's life. The Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them and many fell dead on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines were in hot pursuit of Saul and his sons. And they killed his sons. Jonathan, who was David's best friend, Abinadab, and Malkishua. His sons died that day. The fighting grew fierce around Saul. And when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. There on the battlefield, leaning up against a rock, arrows in his arm, and in his chest. I wonder if Saul has a flashback moment to when Samuel was pouring oil over his head. And I wonder if he says, how did it come to this? He knows he's done. He looks at his armor bearer and he says, kill me. I can't survive, kill me. His armor bearer can't raise a hand against the king. He's a king. No, 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 no. I can't do that. He says, if you don't kill me, they're going to mutilate my butt. They're going to embarrass me in front of the entire nation. Kill me. And the armor bearer just can't do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. First king that the nation begged for dies a lonely, suicidal death. Saul and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men died together that same day. It gets worse. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off Saul's head. They stripped off his armor. They sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols. 
among their people. They put his armor in the temple of the Astrids and they fastened his headless body to the wall of Bethshan, one of their capital cities. What a brutal death of a king the nation wanted. But do you know that there's beauty behind that brutal death? There's purpose. Saul's brutal death doesn't point to Saul. Saul's brutal death points to Jesus. See, Saul's remedy for his rebellion was his own sword. He took matters into his own hands. He, his, his very final act is total control. But see, the remedy for my rebellion is the good news of the gospel, that Jesus took the sword for me, that Jesus, on his own accord, it wasn't an armor bearer that killed Jesus, it wasn't the guards that killed Jesus, it wasn't the cross that killed Jesus, it was the plan of God the Father for you and for me to take his own life, to give his own life for you. Saul was fastened to a wall, forsaken by God. Jesus was fastened to a tree, forsaken by God, so you don't ever have to be forsaken. Saul died for his sin, his foolishness, and his rebellion. And you and I've got sin, you and I've got foolishness, and you and I've got rebellion, and we should die for it. But instead, Jesus dies for mine. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Saul's death put the whole nation in turmoil. It allowed the enemy to drive the Israelites away from their own homes. They were disbanded. They were on the run. What's going to happen? Our king is dead. It was an overthrow. It was by the Philistines. But Jesus' death and resurrection gives us access to a home and a family that can never be taken away. Saul, the whole nation is disrupted. Jesus' entire humanity is brought home by the sacrifice of the cross. Saul's death opened the door, though, for David to approach the throne of Israel because he was not going to lift his hand against God's anointed. I got good news for you, everybody. Jesus' death opened the door for you and I to approach the throne, but not to approach the throne saying, give me what's rightfully mine, not to approach the throne and take the crown and sit on the throne and cross my arms and look at my kingdom. I have that boldness and ability to approach the throne that he stands on. And I and every knee, every knee, every tongue will someday, whether you approach him now, you will approach him later. Do it now though, do it now. And you can approach the throne of grace. When we approach the throne of grace and we surrender and when we say, Jesus, forgive me, that's what repentance is all about. Full trust, complete satisfaction. It will lead to a glad surrender. And I wonder if you're here at one of our locations or online. And for the first time, this is you. It's now. This day is your day to allow 
Jesus to overthrow your own kingdom, to step aside and give him the reign. For some of you, you're distracted. You're living distracted. God changed your heart. Let him stir you again. Let him stir up some sorrow. Let him stir up some of that repentance to make the decision and turn the other direction with every head bowed and every eye closed. Two prayers today. For those of you that for the very first time or the fresh time, you're inviting Jesus to be the Lord and Savior of your life. It's not a prayer I could pray for you, but I'll guide you. You say, Jesus, forgive me. I'm addicted to control. I want things my way, and I want your way. Sin means I've rejected your authority, and I've got sin in my life. I don't want that anymore. And as good of a person that I want to be, I can't be a good enough person to fix my sin. That's why I need you. That's why you died on the cross to save me from my own sin, to raise again in power, to prepare a place for me in heaven, and I can trust in you. And that's what I want to start today. Thank you for not being mad at me, but for giving me this moment to make things right with you. Second prayer, you're distracted. You love God, but you're distracted. Jesus, forgive us. Forgive us for the things that so easily entangle us. We get caught up in this and that and the other. So I wanna love you with all my heart, my soul, my strength, with everything. And I wanna love my neighbors as you love me. Help me not be distracted. Instead of erasing a hand of frustration against someone I dislike, may I bow my knees and pray over my enemies. May I lean into your love and kindness, gentleness, patience, and peace. Those are the gift of the Spirit. I receive those in abundance today, and I will focus my heart on you, and I ask it in the name of Jesus, the strong Son of God, and everybody everywhere said amen.